Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. Now to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. Now, as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. So for the past two weeks, we've explored some really key angles regarding autonomy and the future of combat aviation. The first episode focused on why this is important from a strategic perspective. The second helped define key concepts and establish a model to better understand the technology. Today, we're gonna look at what it'll take for this to succeed in the operational world, not just as a test novelty. And that means thinking about a crawl, walk, run progression. That's how technology evolves almost everywhere else, so it's a logical path here too. So all of this helps us lay out a vision for what you might see in five years, in a decade, or even 15 years out. Bottom line, all of this is really exciting stuff. Okay, so today our panel includes Mike Paco Benitez, who, as you know, works at Shield AI. So Paco, welcome. Hey, Slick. It's great to be back. Awesome. And we also have Brett Darcy, who works at uh, Heron Systems. Hey, Slick. Great to be here. And of course, we have Mitchell's very own Dr. Caitlin Lee. Hey, Slick. And Heather Penny joining us today. Slick, howdy. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate everybody coming back for this last episode. And this is a really unique panel because Paco and Brett are helping innovate this tech while Heather and Caitlin are helping better understand its real world application, the concepts of operation that will be used and the broader force structure implications. And Heather and Paco, they're both combat veterans. So we have some really awesome operational insight here today. So Paco, I want to get started with you and um, you're really in the heart of this world. So let's cut to the chase. And I got to ask, where do you see autonomy and air power being at the 5, 10, or even the 15-year mark? So kind of lay out your vision for what you think we'd see on the operational flight line. Well, it's like that's that's a ton to, to unpack. But the bottom line up front, it's entirely possible. It's feasible on all of those horizons. So you look at 5, 10, and 15, just for context, it really just depends on, on if we prioritize our resources accordingly. So in five years, less than five years, we build a nuclear bomb. Less than 10 years, we put a man on the moon. And less than 15 years, we invented the ICBM. So if you start at the 15-year mark and work backwards, just for everyone's context, that would be 2037. That would be what I would consider a block three CCAs, your combat collaborative aircraft. With tactical autonomy, would have touched the full spectrum of dot mil PF. And so for those listeners who aren't familiar with what that means, that's a staff mnemonic that basically forces everyone to address all of the issues that it's going to take to get something from the lab to the field or concept to combat. And if you don't address all of those aspects, then it'll never leave the lab. It'll never reach the warfighter. And a couple of examples of that, again, this is on that 2037 time frame, Doctrine, the way that we fight with these, we're going to have new missions with a new lexicon, things like aerial mining and forward sensing, tethered versus untethered ops. Organization, the way a fighter squadron looks or a bomber squadron or whatever kind of squadron it might, it's going to look drastically different than it does today. It's going to reflect that man-on-man teaming. It's going to have hardware, software, and embedded support for those operations, whether that's software engineers or a some kind of COCO model for contract-operated support. 
So for training, tactical autonomy, you're gonna need a place to train that's not in the air. And that means that the same autonomy that we fly with in the air is gonna to have to be in the sim. And so we can train and interact with those behaviors to mature that trust and maintain that readiness of that tactical autonomy. The leadership and education. And so there's a ton to unpack there. Well, let's just say that today, the way a fighter pilot knows about the engineering limits and capabilities of how to use his radar sensor, they will have that same foundational knowledge. So someone going through weapon school in 2037 is gonna get a whole academic course on how autonomy works at a PhD level. Personnel, and so your, your autonomy engineers, they won't just be embedded, they're gonna be assigned to fighter squadrons to maintain the readiness of tactical autonomy. It's not just static software, it needs constant learning and evolution whether it's blue capabilities or red capabilities. And as that environment evolves, the behaviors have to evolve with it. Policy, it's gonna get way more specific with very precise language that's equally understood by everyone. That includes operators, people who have to support that, people in the oversight role, and obviously the, the policy wants out there that we all know and love. Uh, so that's kind of block three on that 15 year time horizon you mentioned. If we, if we look at a 10 year time horizon, that would be what I can call a, a block two. And so you'd see mature kind of you're maturing what is a block one form fit and function and so i really want to talk about block one which is that five-year time horizon which is probably what everyone kind of really cares about so back in episode one i called my shot when i said if the air force can't field ccas in five years with trusted and effective tactical autonomy then something is seriously wrong with the process and so what I mean by that is that in that time horizon, just the way that the, the government is structured, the long pole in the tent is bureaucratic. It's not technological. And so in 2022, I looked this up, there were 685 funded AI programs in the Department of Defense. But that funding is peanut butter spread across a, all that portfolio. And just a sliver of that actually is devoted to tactical autonomy. And that's what we need for CCAs, MUMT, and those kind of future operational concepts and turning that into reality. The budget that's in Congress right now, it, it's a little bit better, but not by much. There's a couple of initiatives that we talked about in some previous episodes. And the budget that we're gonna see for 2024, that hits the, the streets in February. So we don't really know what's in it, but just based on the timeline, if you put a, a bunch of resources in 2024 to field something by 2027, that's a really tight timeline. It's possible with the right leadership, prioritization, resources, and authorities, and but back to the beginning examples of his history, a sense of urgency. So that block one, what we could have in 2027, if all those were aligned, we could field a CCA man-to-man teaming ratio for probably a four to one. So four CCAs to one manned uh, aircraft uh, for some kind of limited scope mission, whether it's suppression of enemy air defenses or penetrating strike or a penetrating ISR, but you're probably not gonna have a vehicle that can do all three of those in that block one tranche. So, Paco, I, I really like what you said about, you know, breaking it down into tiers that are related to timeframes, because we've got to get a minimum viable product out there. So we begin training with it, training the autonomy and then maturing all the other back end stuff, the dot MLPF that you that you spoke about. So that's a, a great discussion that really, I think, contextualizes the entire problem. Yeah, and I was going to say that uh, there was a lot to unpack, but you did unpack it, so I do appreciate that. And, and I'm going to call my shot here. I, I'm going to—I think your block one is going to be it, maybe the ten or fifteen-year point, but because I just know the government bureaucracy. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm just going to throw that that line in the sand. That's a good point. Complexity, complexity is definitely a thing. If you have a 
unproven platform with new sensors and a new software architecture and a new communication and a new operating environment and a new operational concepts, the complexities, as you know, in every modern weapon systems program that we have, that's what delete, uh, leads to delays and cost overruns. So we have to be specific. Absolutely. And and again, not to be negative or devil's advocate, but I just know, as you mentioned, the bureaucracy is just going to take forever to get the right person to want that OPR bullet to make it happen. So, but Brett, I want to bring in here because I've got to ask you, you know, what does this mean for combat aircraft, you know, with these same waypoints and, and how do you expect to see manned combat aircraft evolve in relation to their autonomy empowered counterparts that we're going to see on the battle space? Thanks, Slick. So short answer, I don't expect manned aircraft to evolve very much at all for many of the same reasons you just noted. We're talking about programs that are well-established, that have lots of lots of legacy activities going on that are going to carry forward through these, these timelines, right? Those, those program schedules have been fixed for some, some time now. Will we see incremental changes? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would expect, especially in the areas around what the pilot has at, at his or her just, you know, fingertips, right? There, there's an expectation of more battle management, you know, tasking happening inside of the cockpit. And I would expect we can think of tablets or other kinds of human machine interfaces that are going to have to be delivered and, and iterated as, as these five, 10 and 15 years evolve. I think more importantly, the, the evolution is going to be with the humans themselves and with the the dot mil PF pieces on the ground, I think that's a that's going to be a revolution in terms of how we think about squadron creation, how we think about training, and how we think about the application of air combat power in these different missions. So, so I don't think the platforms are going to change so much as as is what the people inside are doing and, and, and how they're applying their own aircraft to a mission, I, I think that will change a, a fair bit. And, and I don't think we know what that change is right now. I, I think there's, as, as Heather noted, there's going to be kind of a contact with reality here where we'll have fair ideas of how this may go. And then we will rely on human ingenuity and creativity based on, on their hands-on experience to evolve the, the techniques, tactics, and procedures to, to deploy CCAs. Now, I think CCAs may change a lot over the 5, 10, 15-year timeline as, as the technology matures and we learn what works and we, we start to pin down, you know, moving on from a minimum viable product to a block two or block three. I think because those programs are not specified yet, if someone out there is paying attention, I, I hope they build in that hardware and software evolution path into the programs because we, we do not have an ability to write requirements for these things now. We can write general objectives and we can start to pin down requirements such that we know them, but we need to give ourselves permission to innovate and, and take some risks in these areas. And it's like, yeah. I, I love what, what Brett says about that, that, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we've got some bureaucratic inertia behind the manned platforms. We will continue to need what they do in the battle space, and we will continue to need the human innovation and ingenuity that, that combat, frankly, requires, right? But the other thing that Brett said is really important is that we need to be able to you know, buy these aircraft, buy the CCAs, get them fielded, even if it's just like an operational test and evaluation, so that we're beginning to experiment with them so we can develop and learn what the requirements should be. So requirements should follow in some ways um, our ability to have that first contact, to get to play with the autonomy, with the CCAs. And I think that that's, that inversion, I think, will be really important. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's so much integration that that we're going to have to talk talk to. But and I don't want to just dive down that path because I, I want to switch over to uh, Dr. Caitlin Lee. And I know that we mentioned this in the first episode of the series that you executed a major workshop on this topic with a variety of of contributors from the military, science and technology community, and industry innovators. So how does what they've laid out compare to the operational demand signals that you're seeing? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's like, I guess just one thing to follow up on some of the comments that Heather and Paco and others were making on just how you integrate autonomy into the force structure. I agree that bureaucracy is is probably one of, if not the biggest hurdle to kind of moving quickly. And so anything that can be done to sort of integrate even a few prototypes into the force structure to provide opportunities, not just to sort of develop con-ops, but also kind of figure out the manning requirements. What what does realistic autonomy look like today? And also to tackle some of the logistics challenges could be really important. So and I think the Air Force is thinking about this. You know, there's been some talk of them purchasing a few of the MQ-28 Ghost Bat UAVs that Australia is already is developing. And that could be a really good way to sort of start to play around with some of this, some of these next generation UAVs in, in short order and could be really, really helpful. And also on the requirements piece, yes, that's very much still shaking out. And there's this sort of tandem activity that needs to go on between both experiment, experimentation and prototyping, but then also sort of building towards that more formal requirement. And so one of the things that we've tried to do at Mitchell is start to explore what that sort of next generation UAV drone requirement might look like by kind of stepping through a series of mission analysis for different mission sets. So back in July, we did a workshop where we brought together lots of air staff members, ACC, Air Force Global Strike Command, AFRL, and then a bunch of technologists, you guys from Shield AI, lots of AI interest, and then plus all the, the big primes and some smaller UAV companies to kind of do the ops analysis and technology piece. We brought you guys all together and kind of said, okay, let's go mission by mission and sort of start to understand the value proposition for this next generation of UAVs, because that will really help us understand lots of other things, like how much autonomy do they actually need to be operationally relevant. So for this first workshop, we focused on penetrating strike missions and did that kind of with the thinking that, you know, Secretary Kendall has said that, you know, one of one of his two kind of priorities for this next generation of UAVs is penetrating strike, the other one being air dominance. So we tackled this penetrating strike uh, mission in the first workshop and tried to step through sort of like, well, how would these, would a new generation UAVs add value if at all? And what we really found was that in the workshop, when we asked the, the participants to go ahead and sort of do mission planning for a penetrating strike mission, was that where there were some real gaps were in ISR and also counter air. And so we asked them, well, if you were to design UAVs to fill that gap, what would they look like? And really one of the most interesting things that came out of this was that even before we imposed any kind of cost constraints on the participants, they all wanted sort of relatively large numbers of less capable UAVs with disaggregated capabilities. So really kind of getting at that swarm concept. And I think that has real implications for autonomy because, and in fact, we asked the participants about this. We said, okay, you you want this swarm to be operating alongside your penetrating strike bomber or, or in some part of the flight envelope and in this, in this highly contested airspace. So, what how what does the human machine control look like and what we heard from the participants is that they all wanted you know pretty high levels of autonomy essentially that these large numbers of uavs were operating independently talking to each other via a data link but not necessarily 
kicking back any data or having any kind of data link back with a human. And that was just driven by this large number of UAVs and sort of, and also the contested air environment where comms were, were likely to be sort of contested or denied. And so autonomy became a real requirement. And, and in fact, at the end of the workshop, one of the big kind of conclusions was actually the autonomy needs to come first. If you believe that larger numbers of less capable systems is really what you need, then, then actually the C2 piece becomes absolutely critical. And so autonomy and communications are, are prerequisites for designing a new generation of UAVs. If, if you think the, the, the concept of operations is, is generally to buy larger numbers of less capable systems and that that's going to provide the operational effectiveness. I, I do want to hop in with Paco because I know we've talked about this before, and you mentioned three types of conops for autonomy-driven combat aircraft. As I understand it, it comes down to essentially three tiers based on levels of teaming. So can you explain that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Slick. First, I want to highlight in the .mil PF, this would be the D, the doctrine, which does not exist. But my framework that I've kind of thought through is the three tiers of teaming from the bottom to the top would be your flight level, your mission level, and your theater level. So the flight level, we'll start with that one. That's your what you think about with man-to-man teaming, all the concepts we've talked through a little bit on the past three episodes, but it's it's really what you think of. It's that loyal wingman. And so you can offboard some of that, the either the sensing or, or a weapons truck, something like that. But ultimately, it's managed by a flight lead that's in the fight, whether it's to the left, to the right, just in front of or just behind that loyal wingman. And so that's what we think of as like a flight level of teaming. Interestingly, it's probably it would probably closely tethered ops with some kind of wingman of opportunity capability. So the ability to aggregate and disaggregate wingmen across different formations. So you'd think a flight lead swapping wingmen with different capabilities based on weapon state, fuel state, sensor capabilities, things like that. The second one would be mission level. So I think this is your kind of packages, force packaging. And so this is a formation of CCAs that are executing highly autonomous functions. And that would be something that's, uh, think of it as a formation. So you, you have a F-16 background. So they have a seed package. So I have, I have a heterogeneous package of CCAs that all look a little different. Some are jammers, some are geolocators for ISR, some are decoys, maybe some are putting down chaff corridors. And they're all being directed by a uniquely qualified air battle manager that's perhaps on an E7 wedge tail 100, 200 miles away. And so that's kind of how we, we we think about tasking packages today with, with man teams, whether it's the strike package lead, the C package, the OCA package, it's all managed through some kind of uh, airborne command and control. And so executing that plan. And so that'd be a combination of tethered and untethered ops, depending on how, on how you view it. And at the macro level, that third level would be your theater level. So this is wholly independent of the battle space, managed by the Air Operations Center for an operational or strategic purposes across the theater. And that's not related to any particular mission or package. And so when I think about this is, you know, there's potentially long loiter CCAs in different parts of the battle space. And, you know, they can get executed from the Air, Air Operations Center to aggregate together to do a collaborative sensing mission to generate a time-sensitive common operating picture over a very specific space for a very specific time. So the combatant commander or the CFAC, the Air Component Commander, can make a decision. That's kind of how I think about those three levels of teaming and how they could be applied. Pac, I, I really appreciate that perspective. And, you know, you have us thinking about the battle space. So I'm going to put you and Heather on the spot here as the combat veterans. So what do you think this means from a human perspective? And what does this mean for airmen of the future and how we'll expect them to execute? Well, so as Paco has mentioned before, we can't forget the human element when we think about teaming, right? We're calling them collaborative combat aircraft. And that collaboration 
implies a partnership, implies a give and take, implies the exchange of information. So we're, we really need to think about how we're building these as teams. So in addition to, for example, the mission gaps that, that Caitlin described and those operational concepts and the doctrine that, that Paco's talked about, we'll need to get much more specific about the nuts and bolts of how we exploit the unique strengths of both humans and the machines. Like what do they both do differently in the battle space that the other one isn't quite as good at when we begin to build those teams together so that we're able to mitigate each other's vulnerabilities and really build upon and exploit the unique attributes of both humans and the CCAs and plus how they need to interact. Here's an important piece though. We need to ensure that we do not ignore human factors as we begin to develop both the CCAs and the TTPs, you know, the elements of feedback, signaling, interface, they might not seem as important to the machine because for the machine, they just think about it as data inputs, but it really matters to human performance. You know, to, to use a, an old example of the very early predators, only an engineer with no combat or flight operational experience would think that Control-Alt-L is a good way to turn an airplane left, right? You know, so we need to be, we need to bring the warfighters and operators in early in the development of CCAs, and we'll need to fly an exercise together. That's a great point, Heather. So the human factors, uh, I'm glad you, you, you dwelled on that a little bit. It can get, it's very important and it can get very nuanced very quickly. This is why we have professionals who do this for a living. And so it goes all the way back to the Cambridge cockpit back in the, I think it was the 1920s, 1930s, where they, they figured out how to actually the optimal layout of the instruments in the cockpit. So transferability between different aircraft and standardization for training could happen. Today, we call it PVI, it's pilot vehicle interface. And so we have entire working groups who focus on this for every MDS, every type of aircraft, because you know what is, and it comes to culture, training, experience in, in each one of these pockets of excellence we have in our flying communities. And so, you know, something that's magenta in an F-16 cockpit, and it's a triangle, might be yellow and a square in an F-35 cockpit. And so even having those nuances as we switch between platforms, that transferability, uh, there's definitely a learning curve. And um, that's just a PVI. You have the the, the hands-on throttle and sick, the HOTAS. And so that's completely different between all the aircraft. So what is Heather's point? And then when you get into the cockpit layouts, and so like some aircraft have touchscreens, some don't, they have push buttons still. And so every community and, and the, the integration from that, the human factors is gonna be just a little bit different. And that's kind of the tech aspect. But if we want to go back to the trust, because that's really a big part of the human factors as well. Um, it's like, you know this, so I'm just going to ask a rhetorical question and answer it myself. So if you ask any fighter pilot in the world, what is the most important part of a sortie? And you, you will get the same answer. It's not the planning. It's not the briefing. It's not the execution. It's the debrief. And the post-mission rationality of advanced autonomy is a critical part of this that we need to stay focused on. And so Heather briefed the example of the technical side of the human factors of, hey, I wanted you to go uh, control all L is not a good way to, to put that in the interface. Well, I would say from the, from this, the human trust perspective, if you were expecting, if this happens, then I, like just like a wingman, I'm gonna brief you, if this happens in the flight, you're going to go left. And in execution, that wingman goes right, 
you don't come back and and throw the wingman away and go get another wingman. No, you go back and you look at the tapes, you pull the data, and you deep read to find out what the reality was and if it was a perception, decision, or executioner. And sometimes the flight lead's wrong because he does not perceive the environment the same as the wingman. Sometimes the wingman's wrong. And so having the ability in a flight debrief to effectively and efficiently know not just the what, but the why the tactical autonomy did something is a critical part of the human factors for maturing this technology. Yeah, I could not agree more there. The sad part is it'll make Friday nights a lot more boring because we won't be able to tease the wingman that they turned right instead of left like we briefed. But now really uh, getting back to to being serious, Heather, how does training uh, need to evolve for the human counterparts then? Well, so so like what Paco just said about the debrief element of that, that's absolutely crucial because the we as we know that debrief is the most important part of the training because that's where we peel back the onion of what were you thinking and what were you perceiving and why did you decide this and why did you do that? So that that perception decision and execution piece that, that Paco talked about we need to be able to peel those layers back with our autonomy so we can understand why it behaved a certain way. We can retrain it, redirect it, but then also understand if there are things that the AI sees in the battle space that we can learn from as well. So there's going to be a different evolution of how we do this debrief as we go forward, because as humans, we'll need to adapt to the CCA behaviors because if autonomy can do really unique things within the battle space that are counterintuitive and they can evolve the TTPs, then we need to be able to harvest that knowledge and then internalize and adjust that for ourselves. Yeah, Paco, anything to add there? Yeah, I'd say that there's prob- there's going to be a point, I don't know when, but I know it will happen, there will be a point where the tactical autonomy will start to learn and learn things about optimizing its behaviors to accomplish some missions that humans hadn't thought of. And so that is where you start changing the paradigm of tactics development. And so you can use autonomy, there will be a point where you could use autonomy to start developing potential tactics to then give the humans to go and fly in the sim or live fly to see how that actually interacts in the operational environment. And so that there's a there's an interesting human factors dynamic that, that it'll be nice to keep a pulse on of how that evolves over time. Yeah, Paco yeah. said Paco said it's smarter. You know, and and here's the other piece that is a consequence of that. And and Paco mentioned this earlier with that whole dot MLPFP piece of it is that we'll need to have those software engineers that can do that adaptation for the autonomy embedded in the squadrons. They'll be part of that. So just like we've got snackos and the bean counters, you know, we'll need to also have those AI software engineers specialized in the autonomy as an integral part of the squadron. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The you know, the the shoddy val you know type of data collection is going to be totally different when we get that data back you know from our autonomous wingman and and see what actually happened from their point of view in the airspace and how do we integrate that into lessons learned is going to be tremendous because that's going to drive the the further TTP development and that's going to take a special skill set. So with with that kind of bridge, I want to hop in with Brett and ask what the training regimen looks like for the AI at the operational edge. Yeah, so when we think about training at the edge, you know, one one thing to keep in mind is that the the technology to learn very quickly from a single experience is just not really there, right? I mean, we can we can do some tricks to get there, but but to not, you know, dive into those details, really what we're talking about is aggregating of data across many sorties. So, you know, obviously we're going to want to drive toward getting 
better at learning and adapting the AI, AI quicker, but then there's there's some second and third order consequences that come out of that. But but I think for, as a as a first you know pass, what we're going to do is seek to collect, aggregate, and and then exploit mission data kind of broadly across the entire fleet of CCAs, you know, and, and, and learn broadly instead of learning specifically. And then that's something I think we need to keep in mind. But when we think of training at the edge, I, I think everyone thinks about machine learning and, and kind of diving in and, and having the machine teach itself based on what it just experienced or what it and its, its buddies just experienced. And, and I think that's actually completely wrong. The problem with that is if we're evolving autonomy via machine learning or, or something like that, we're we're exposing potentially pretty radical change in, in in how the autonomy will operate from from a episode by episode, and we're not bureaucratically or temperamentally in a position to extend that much trust to something that's training right at the edge. Right, it, it'd be akin to walking in across the squadron, picking some random person, and saying, "Okay, you're up next. You get the next F-16 sortie." But we just wouldn't do that. Instead, we're going to be more incremental. And I think that drives us toward things like changing the, you know, changing the parameters that are guiding the autonomy's decision making. So better optimizing for what we're seeing. And, and examples of that could be things like making sure we're getting the effective ranges of threats uh, right. You know, we we may go in with a, with a supposition that you know this certain radar can see you at a certain range, or that a missile can can reach out and get you within a certain envelope, and we may be wrong. And, and just simply changing those parameters will change how the autonomy behaves, but in a much more predictable way we can trust. And so what we're trying to do is uh, update or, or optimize the behaviors, tasks, and tactics that, the, that we already have vetted via some kind of a DTOT process and, and then the human machine training operations that, that Heather and Paco talk about, but not radically change what's happening just make us make the autonomy perform better against the world as it actually exists versus the world it was built for. And, and I think that's kind of the way forward when we thought, start thinking about training at the edge. Will we get to a place where, where, you know, machine learning technology and our ability to test and evaluate and verify and validate the, the training of AI allows us to do, you know, one or two shot learning and, and evolve the way everyone kind of thinks about it in a science fiction way. Maybe, but I think practically speaking, we should be thinking about designing these systems and, and these these solutions for for fielding more along the lines of a constrained parameterization based changes at the edge versus a complete rewrite. Yeah, I was thinking as you were describing that how binary the if it's auto training like oh I just got spiked you know let me turn around and and not be vulnerable to where you might have some negative learning happening really quickly before the human could really say no I, I need you to get to get in there and potentially be exposed to a weapons envelope or something like that. And slick, so like we see that now in, in our ongoing research and development, right? I mean, there's machine learning tends to learn something that works before it learns the right thing and getting to the right thing can take some time. And, and it, it, it takes a lot of nuance from both the engineer and the operator to really look at it and get it right. But on the upside, we have seen that changing the parameters allows us to guide behavior very directly and still maintain the predictability and trust that we had earned through many, many iterations of design and development. So I think this you know, it seems like a very small thing to do to update threat envelopes or things or, or information about the environment, but it's actually quite impactful. But it just does it in a way that we can understand and, and, and anticipate, which is, you know, kind of where we want to be. 
Absolutely. And, and of course, on the human side, trusting that data that our autonomous friends are, are giving back is going to be pretty interesting. But I do want to hop over to Caitlin, since we're talking about this, and get your opinion on what risk and vulnerability look like for autonomy in combat. And I think we understand this pretty well from the human lens, but what about autonomy and how do we manage this? Yeah, thanks. Like, I think there's probably at least two cardinal things to think about when it comes to risk and vulnerability of autonomy in combat. And there's probably many more, but the two that sort of come to the front of my mind are first the risk as you have these increasingly autonomous systems of of them having some kind of negative impact on friendly manned aircraft so if the autonomy algorithm doesn't work the way that you think it's going to as you guys were just talking about that could have implications not just for the operational or tactical effectiveness of the weapon system but also for the friendly manned aircraft flying near that weapon system and and that's just something we'll have to work through i think and and i'd be interested in your your all's thoughts on that but it seems like something that's part of its ttps part of it's sort of building that a certain level of predictability into the algorithm and how the the AI and the autonomy is expected to act, but certainly a first and major risk in a combat scenario is just making sure that those friendly forces are are protected and the autonomy is behaving in an appropriate manner in relation to those friendly forces. Then the second big issue is as the autonomy goes out to do its job in the environment, so identifying targets, selecting and engaging in targets, is it doing that to the right targets? So this is sort of the AI's impact on the adversary, and I think that's a, an issue for at least two reasons. The first one is just the civilian casualty issue, which is in, in the newspaper so much these days, in terms of just making sure that we are hitting the right target and we don't have any sort of second and third order effects from hitting the wrong targets, hitting civilian targets, things like that. But perhaps even more from a brass tacks operational perspective, if the AI is going out and it's hitting the wrong targets, we're wasting rounds and we're wasting uh, valuable um, capacity to go out and, and, and have mission effectiveness. So that's another primary consideration. So I think those are two really some big risks and vulnerabilities. And I guess on the second one, I would add, there's a there's another layer to this. So I mentioned, or it applies to both of them. So I mentioned that there's a certain predictability issue that we can sort of manage and control with the AI. We can and talk, you know, we can try to iterate on that algorithm, get it to do what we want it to do. But the other factor is, of course, that the adversary gets a vote. And so both in terms of protecting those friendly forces, but also in terms of hitting the right target, what we also have to worry about is not just building fidelity into the algorithms, but also the potential for the adversary to try to trick or spoof our AI. And so that's another concern as well. That's a great segue for my next question, because, you know, we uh, often say that the enemy has a vote here. So we know our adversaries are developing this type of tech, too, and they're coming up with their own con ops. So how do we need to fold that into our thinking as we're developing ours? And uh, Paco, I think you probably have some some great insight here. Yeah. So Slick, what I'd say is we talked about, I think it was in episode two, it might have been episode one, but the, the Air Force, we'll say the Air Force, Air Forces in general in the modern age are constrained by numerous paradigms, and that's risk to force, risk to mission, cost and position, and cost exchange. I know Mitchell has done a good job of talking about cost and position, cost exchange, and cost per effect. All of those are, are paradigms that are, that are constraining the current Air Force. And China knows this, Russia knows this, we know it. And so with that in mind, like this technology is, is designed to solve those problems. And so when we think about applying that in, in the battle space today, when we go out and we fly and we, when we look at a Russia or China scenario, let's, let's just pick on China for a little bit. At the end of the day, it is a manned versus manned fight for airmen. Tomorrow, again, changing that paradigm, there's going to be three new dynamics. There's going to be a manned versus an unmanned. There's going to be an unmanned versus a manned. And then there's going to be an unmanned versus unmanned. 
And the key takeaway is not that there's three new new dynamics that's going to be injected into the battle space. It's that two of those three new dynamics are red-induced dynamics. And so we have to keep in mind of where China and Russia are going and make sure that we are not the fast followers, but we're taking the lead so we can control that battle space. And the last thing I'll say, since we're thinking about strategic competition with China and Russia, and in this context of applying tactical autonomy, you know, there's one enduring advantage that the United States has over both of them, and they will have for generations, and that's allies and partners. And so, you know, I spent my entire military career dealing with security stovepipes that I'm sure Slick and Heather, you have too. And in a lot of cases, it actually hurt programs more than it helped because it stifled progress at the expense of security or perceived security. And so when we look at tactical autonomy, whether it's something like an MQ-28 or something coming out of the UK, really an AUKUS type focus, or the, the interfaces, the architectures, the software, the behaviors, we, we need a yes foreign approach. So a no, no foreign is not going to work with this. We need a yes foreign approach. And so if we can find ways to, to help Australia feel the MQ-28 man-to-man teaming with their F-35s and their F-18Fs, and we can help the UK's Tempest program, which is their sixth generation fighter with their loyal wingman concepts, and we can all get better together faster, that's the way that we dominate this battle space. And that's the way that we take the lead over China and we take the lead over Russia and we have that generational leap of capability that is able to deter them while assuring our as partners. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I know we've touched so much on the security limitations. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I'm looking at the clock here and know that we need to move on quickly because we could go on for hours and, and we have being in our third episode here. But I, I want to ask Heather, what if the key assumptions we're going off of here don't play out? So what fallback options and agility based on discovery? What does that look like? Well, it's like, I think the main thing is we have to keep our manned platforms. We have to keep those production going. So that's our hedge. There's no way that we can divest, invest, you know, stopping the production and acquisition of manned aircraft because we're trying to save, you know, save money that we can then put into unmanned aircraft. That's a losing proposition. I mean, we all know that divest, invest has always failed the Air Force. Look at CAF Redux. I mean, look, we can look at a number of examples in the past where when the Air Force cut programs, divest early or even just dialed back the rate of acquisition of manned platforms, that ended up leaving the Air Force smaller. It, it drove the existing platforms harder, so it prematurely and accelerated their aging process, and we got nothing on the backside. So although we sort of talk about F-35 and B-21, like, oh, there's all this bureaucratic momentum, it's really not the bureaucracy that needs to keep that going. It is a strategic and operational imperative to keep those production lines going because humans are the backstop. Humans are going to be that strategic hedge and humans are going to be how we manage that risk within the battle space. Because we also need to think about what ends up happening, risk and vulnerability, Caitlin and uh, Paco talked about some of that. But in addition to spoofing, what happens when autonomy experiences a context or a scenario in the battle space that they have not been trained for? So humans have that generalized intelligence and the ability to apply analogous situations to basically kind of chunk the rock and do their best guess and make something happen, we can adapt in real time, whereas the autonomy can't. So even if we're able to field these systems in the timeline that we need them, and I, I say this 
in that it, it, I'm not discouraging CCA at all. We need to have them for a number of really important reasons. But even if they do arrive in time, we have to be prepared for that real-time discovery and how we address what happens when they're surprised. So humans are going to be the backstop, bottom line, and we're going to continue to need to have manned platforms. So we have to build them and buy them as fast as we can. Well, this is our final episode on this issue for a while. So anybody have any uh, save rounds they want to fire off? Yeah, I just got one slick. I think it's pretty clear from the episodes that this is a journey. And, and so thanks for having us. And we just want to ensure that we can bring along the air power enthusiasts, the experts and those supporters along for that ride as we help create the future that the Air Force needs. And so I, one last thing is I want to have a shameless plug for Mitchell's new Center for the UAV and Autonomy Studies. So I expect to see more great things coming out of that from Caitlin and Heather. So no pressure. <laughs> thanks, Paco. Thanks, Paco. We'll do our best and uh, we'll have our first paper out this fall on coming out of our workshop looking at UAVs for penetrating strike missions. And uh, since we're also talking about reports, we just uh, debuted our uh, teaming report, Five Imperatives for CCA and Human Teaming. So catch that on our website. All right. Well, hey, again, I can't say thanks enough. And Paco, you are obviously key to this effort. So thanks for all your time. And thanks so much to the rest of the team for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Slick. As always, it's great to be here, Slick. Thanks, Slick. Great to be here. Thanks, Slick. This is awesome. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.